Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, all of you who've braved the weather and made it to one of our locations. We're so glad that you did. And if you're joining us online from whatever your location, thank you for checking us out online and being a part of this experience. I don't know if you've ever run across the old book. It's considered a classic in sort of self-help circles. It's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the author, Stephen Covey, as he's talking about living with the end in mind, gives a particular exercise, which is very provocative. He says, imagine that you're going to a funeral of a loved one, and you drive up to the chapel where the funeral's being held, and imagine yourself walking in and what you would feel, and you hear the soft organ music playing, you see flowers everywhere, you see the faces of loved ones, and, and many of them you recognize, some you don't. But you're beginning to feel this feeling of appreciation for this person that you have loved but now lost, and you're thankful to God for them in your life. But then you make your way to the front of the chapel, and you look into the casket, and that's where you become face-to-face with yourself, because that's when you realize that that's you in the casket. This is your funeral three years from today. So you go and take your seat and you glance at the program that you've been handed. And you notice in the printed program that there's going to be four people eulogizing you that day at the funeral. One is a family member who's gonna speak to what kind of husband or wife you were, what kind of mom or uh, or, or dad, what kind of son or daughter or sibling or cousin, whatever. The second person to speak is going to be a friend, a really good friend who can speak to who you were as a person because they've seen you at your best and at your worst. Third is a person from your workplace. They've seen you in the marketplace, in that professional environment, and they've seen how you use your various gifts and abilities or leadership in that, in that space. And fourth and finally is someone from your church. And Stephen Covey asked the question, now think deeply, what would you want those people, those four speakers, to say about you? The kind of person you were? What character would you want them to have seen in you? What contributions or achievements would you want them to remember about you? Now look carefully at all the people around you because these are the most important people in your life and in your world to you. What difference would you want to have made in their lives? Now, Covey's point, of course, is that we ought to live life with the end in mind. And if you figure out what you would want these people to say about you, then you begin to adjust your life so that indeed that is what they would have said. Now, why does he even put that exercise in the book? Because so many of us live lives trying to climb ladders only to realize they're leaning against the wrong wall, right? Right? 
We push and push and exhaust ourselves living frenetically and going after achievements only to realize that in accomplishing that, we jeopardized and lost some things that were even more valuable to us. And it's a horribly sad thing to come to the end of life and realize, oh my goodness, my priorities were totally out of order. My values were all out of whack. Well, that's what the guy in today's parable realized. He realized far too late that he'd been pursuing things without looking at what was even more important. And that's why I call this a gut check parable. Now, I don't know if you use that phrase, gut check, very much, but it's a common phrase in our culture. So I wanted us to see what an official definition of it is because we all bring our own connotations when we use those words. Here's what the Oxford Dictionary gives as a definition of gut check. An evaluation or test of a person's resolve, commitment, or priorities, typically with respect to a particular course of action. And we all need those, don't we? We all need to stop at times in our lives and ask, is the road I'm on gonna get me to where I wanna go? Is the way I'm living right now, my habits, my priorities, my attitudes, my thinking, my actions, is it going to get me to that end that I really, really value? And I think the start of a new year is a great time to have a gut check moment. That's why in the month of January, we're gonna be looking at three parables that I believe are among the most hard-hitting that Jesus ever taught. And I've chosen these three parables in part because of the role they've played in my life. In fact, I, in, each, in each one of them, I'm gonna tell you when I first had that gut check moment for me where God really broke through and in a very loving but powerful way gave me a punch in the gut and said, Rex Keener, you need to tweak some things. You need to look at the way you're going. You need to change some behaviors in your life. And by God's grace, I was able to make that pivot and make that change. So the first parable I want us to look at is found in Luke's gospel, chapter 12. Let's look at it together, and then we'll spend some minutes unpacking its meaning for our lives. It starts here in verse 13. Jesus has been teaching, and, and as usual, people are gathering around. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I'm making some assumptions about this person. My guess is that he was a younger brother because in the Jewish culture, Levitical law had said that the older brother gets the lion's share of the inheritance. The older brother gets two-thirds, the younger one-third. So uh, I'm making an assumption. I don't know this for sure, but my guess is this is a younger brother. And he's looking at that and going, this ain't fair. Jesus, would you fix this? Hey, you've got a reputation for fixing things. Would you fix this situation? Go to my brother and say, look, let's make this fair. Let's split it 50-50, why don't we? 
But Jesus looked into this young man's soul, just like he looks into ours. And by the way, in case you never thought about it, God knows exactly what you're thinking in this new year. He knows precisely where our priorities are. He knows what we've got on our calendar. He knows what our values are as we enter this new year. He knows what is in the hearts of men and women. And Jesus peered into this man's soul and he saw that some things were out of order. And so he uses it. He uses this as a teachable moment. Let's look on here at what he said. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, to them, he kind of turns to the crowd. He's not just talking to the young man now. He says to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. Now, I have committed verse 15 to memory, and I I would strongly recommend you do the same. This is one of the, the verses that I review at least once a week. And I just kind of pause and meditate. Why do I do that? Because I'm just as vulnerable as anyone to allow material things to crowd God out of my life and to take a place in my life that they do not deserve to have. So every week, I, I meditate on what Jesus said and I, I kind of do a, an inventory of my life and go, do, am I possessing my possessions or are they possessing me? Am I controlling them or are they running the show in my life? Because a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. So it's a warning to all of us. And then Jesus goes into what I think is one of his most unforgettable parables. Let's look at it together, and then we'll draw some conclusions. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, (laughs) what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I mean, life is good. He is living his best life now. I mean, it's all up and to the right. Things are going well. He thinks he's a financial genius at this point. Times are good. Then he said, this is what I'll do. Tear down these old barns, build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, kick back, man. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus concludes this parable and usually, usually, in Jesus' parables, he has a, a zinger, a, a pithy statement that summarizes the lesson, and, and I think that's true here. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Now, I've, I've read this parable with lots of different people. I've, I've 
read it with people in a small group Bible study setting. I've read it in a seminary classroom with seminarians. I've read it in a leadership forum with people where I was teaching leadership. And, and I've noticed that people who aren't familiar with the whole Bible come to some common false conclusions when they read this parable for the first time. So I want us to consider three false conclusions that people come to upon reading this parable for the first time. And I want us to look at those and then see what the Bible really says in each case. The first false conclusion that I often hear from people is that material possessions are inherently bad. You ever heard that? Believe it or not, I meet people on a regular basis who've come to the conclusion that poverty is inherently righteous, and if you've got a lot of stuff, that is inherently evil or wicked in and of itself. Now, I can kind of see how people might conclude that, but just to set the record straight, the Bible teaches no such thing. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple and you're, you're wanting to learn what Scripture really says, please, please take note of this in your mind or some other way. Consistently, Scripture teaches that money and possessions are a neutral thing in and of themselves. You need to know that. In other words, they're amoral. Inherently, they are neither good nor bad. Listen, it's our attitude toward money and what we do with it that makes it either a blessing or a bane in our lives. Okay? That's what the Bible teaches. Money is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It's what we do with it. It's our attitude toward it that makes it either a blessing or a bane in our lives. Now, if you read the Bible consistently, you'll notice right away that Scripture sounds a lot of warnings about money. Here's another passage I wish every disciple of Jesus would memorize. People who wanna get rich, and that's a lot of folks, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith believe it or not, and pierce themselves with many griefs. What a powerful passage that is. My goodness, that clarifies a lot of things for me. When people have this consuming desire to become wealthy, what it does is it sets them up for a lot of traps and foolish and harmful desires that are actually gonna become a bane in their life, not a blessing. It wasn't the money that did that. Are you getting that? It wasn't the money, because that's neutral. It was the love of money. It was their attitude toward money that caused those things to actually become a source of evil in their lives. So this first conclusion that people come to, flat out wrong. Material possessions are not inherently bad. In fact, in the hands of prudent people, as we're gonna see in a few minutes, they can actually become an enormous blessing if those people are using them wisely with kingdom priorities in mind. 
okay? So second false conclusion. Again, reading this parable with lots of different people and seeing what their initial reactions are to it because it's a strong parable. It really touches us in a visceral place. A second false conclusion I've seen people quickly make is that all rich people are selfish pigs. You ever heard that? You ever seen anybody with that attitude? Can I confess, I came from a family, a little farm family with very few material things, and I had that attitude. I thought, now the righteous people in the world are folks like us who don't have much, and we're eking out a living. They're the really righteous ones. But you know what? Those rich snobs, those rich people, they're the evil people in the world. I honestly, I hate to admit it, but I honestly thought that. And you can, again, in all fairness, you can kind of see why people would come to that conclusion, right? Because here's this rich dude and he's just hoarding more and more and more. He's consumed with greed. Psychologists talk today about narcissistic syndromes and disorders, and they're very real. This guy seems to have narcissism. If you read the text carefully, nine times he talks about himself his goods, his barns, his crops. He has eaten up with selfishness and apparently, apparently, he thinks it's gonna make him happy and secure. But if this guy is the poster child for rich people, you can kind of see why some folks would conclude that all rich people are selfish pigs. But again, If you're a disciple of Jesus today and you wanna know what the balanced view of scripture really is, scripture teaches no such thing, nor does history show that either. Again, it's our attitude toward things that determines what impact they have on us. Now, in scripture, Jesus said things like this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? Is he saying that rich people cannot go to heaven? No, he's giving a stern warning though about the nature of money. Money can easily take the place of God in our lives. That's why Jesus says, watch out. It's not an empty warning. The threat is very real. Watch out. This is a gut check moment for everyone listening and it should be for us too. So I wanna tell you, not all rich people are greedy. Let me give you some examples. In the Bible, Abraham is fabulously wealthy. He's a man of great faith, but he's also a man of great wealth and he's generous. When it comes time for he and his nephew Lot to kind of part ways because their workers weren't getting along well and they couldn't have all their livestock in one place. Abraham said generously, look, you choose the land you wanna settle in. And Lot selfishly chose the fertile land along the rivers and the plains. And Abraham was cool with it. He said, oh, go ahead. He had a generous heart. He had not succumbed to greed. Or how about King David? You talk about a guy who's got a lot of gold and silver. But he never let it capture his heart. In fact, when it came time for the building of the temple in Jerusalem, David gave lavishly from his own personal wealth. How about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? Wealthy, 
members of the Sanhedrin, and yet they became faithful followers of Jesus. I'll tell you another one, Lydia. You wanna read about her? Read in Acts chapter 16. She had come from the city of Thyatira. She was now living in Philippi, and she was a crackerjack business mogul, Lydia. She had a prospering textile business, and God opened her heart to the gospel. She became a faithful disciple of Jesus. Oh, I wanna talk to Lydia in heaven one day, because you know what she did? Instead of becoming a selfish, wealthy person, she opened her home up and it became a center for the church in Philippi. Folks, I'm telling you that throughout history, the story is the same. I wish we had time for multiple examples, but let me just give you one incredible example of a wealthy person who did not let wealth consume him. His name? Count von Zinzendorf. Now, I dare you to name your child Zinzendorf, all right? Just just throwing it out there as a challenge. Zinzendorf, what a name. Count von Zinzendorf. In what we today would call Germany, we're the early 1700s. He lives in Saxony. He has a sprawling and lavish estate, thousands of acres of land in Saxony in Germany. Very wealthy. He becomes a true follower of Jesus. Wow. He's born again. God changes his heart. He's on fire for the Lord. He starts growing as a Christian and he starts wanting to know, Lord, what can I do? I've got so much abundance. And God put it on his heart to start providing a place for Christian refugees, real Christians, who were getting kicked out of their own countries and cities because of their beliefs. There was a lot of persecution in that day as well as today. And so he allowed them to come and live free on his property. He provided land. He provided food and shelter for thousands of Christians from all over that part of the world. And a little community developed called Hernhut. Read about it sometime. It's amazing. It's one of the healthiest expressions of Christianity that has ever existed. And they began to experience revival. They looked into God's word. Disciples were being made, hand over fist. And in 1732, they they did something unprecedented. They started sending out missionaries from their little Hernhut community to Greenland, to the West Indies. Can you believe this? Some of them actually became slaves because they felt that was the best way they could take the gospel to the enslaved people of the West Indies. That's commitment. It was the Moravian Christians from Hernhut who impacted John Wesley so much. In fact, he saw in their lives such a quality of calm and peace and confidence in God, even in the midst of a ship crossing the Atlantic Ocean, that he said, they've got something that I don't have. They were from the Hernhut community. And all, by the way, Hernhut, I could go on, (laughs) so many cool things that came out of Hernhut. They had the longest prayer meeting in history, a prayer meeting that literally lasted for 100 years, 100 years unabated. All because one wealthy aristocrat refused to yield to the temptations of greed and he used his money and influence wisely for the glory of God. You know what I think God's looking for? 
I think God's looking for some Christians like that today. That he can trust with more abundance and that they'll use it wisely for the kingdom. I really believe that. Are you one of those people? Am I one of those people? You know, this week, I went back in my mind and I thought about some of the wealthy Christians that I've known. I was actually shocked at how many I could name by name that I got to know pretty well through the, through the years. Oh, I wish I had had the time to tell you some of their stories. I mean, I know one guy in Oklahoma City, very wealthy through real estate mostly, and he has used that wealth to send hundreds, literally hundreds, probably close to a thousand young men and women to seminary and paid their entire tuition and cost to go to seminary. Boy, what an investment in the kingdom. What an investment in the kingdom. I knew another guy who used to say to us in the Billy Graham team, he would, he would take the young men and, and then take the young women in a separate trip and he would say to the young guys like myself, listen, we're gonna go to a fancy men's clothier and you're, you're gonna pick out a couple of suits today, nice suits, two or three shirts, ties, the whole nine yards, and I'm gonna, he's gonna pay for all of it. Take the women to a women's store, do the same thing, pick out two or three dresses, paid for all of that out of his own pocket, just as a way to try to bless people with the wealth and the abundance that he had. Now, here, here's the one thing that all the wealthy people I know Christians have had in common. Here it is. Very different in how they get. Some of them earned it the old-fashioned way. They inherited it, right? Others were blessed in business. They worked hard, very disciplined, and God prospered them. Here's the one thing they all had in common. They all understood that God is the owner and that they're simply managers and that they were called to be wise stewards of all that God had entrusted to them. So let me ask again, I wonder if we allow ourselves a gut check moment right now. Does that describe us? Do we really get that God wants us to be wise managers of what he's entrusted to us because he's the owner and we will give an account. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, it is required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. Well, we've looked at two false conclusions. I wanna look at a third and final one that I have often heard when people read this parable for the first time. That is that saving money is a bad idea. <laughs> now again, you, you, you can kind of get it, right? You can get it because here's a, here's a greedy dude who's just hoarding more and more for his own selfish purposes so he can eat, drink, and be merry. He's just blowing it all on himself and he's just saving and saving. And so people conclude, I guess the Bible is against saving money. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. Here's what scripture says. Scripture applauds people who are disciplined enough and diligent enough to put some money away and save it and invest it. Let me give you a couple of verses. Proverbs 21, verse 20, in the house of the wise are stores. I like that word. It's like, like you got a store, stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish person just devours all he, he lives with no margin. 
He has nothing put away for a rainy day. Scripture says that person is foolish. Here's one of Dave Ramsey's favorite verses. Proverbs 13, verse 11, dishonest money dwindles away. But he who gathers money little by little, in other words, you get into a practice of packing it away little by, you're not, you're not trying to play the lottery and get a big windfall. You're not hoping that your ship will come in one day and, and then you'll have enough money to pack away. No, you're disciplined enough little by little paycheck by paycheck, to put a little bit away in savings, that's the one that God says that money is gonna grow. That's what you wanna get into. So according to the Bible, one of the wisest practices we could ever start in our lives is to begin to take a portion of what we earn and to put it away for a rainy day. Folks, let me tell you something. I've lived with no financial margin in my life and I've lived with some financial margin. I'll take the margin every time. I don't wanna go back to the days when I was nervous and anxious that the car might tear up because I'm looking at Debbie saying, if it tears up, we can't fix it. We have no money to fix it right now. I don't know how we're gonna do this. By the way, in our Financial Peace University classes, which I hope you'll all sign up for, even if you've taken it years ago, it'd be nice to do a refresher in FPU, Financial Peace University. You can literally sign up for those classes now. There's, I think, next week or two, there's classes, whole new series of classes starting. One of the first things that they urge you to do is to get an emergency fund. So in other words, if you do have that emergency, it doesn't plunge you into debt all over again. So let's pivot now in these final moments together. If this parable is not teaching all those false things, what's going on here? What, what is Jesus actually saying? I think the crux of the matter is found in verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself and is not, but is not rich toward God. That's the zinger. That's the zinger, verse 21. Whatever our financial situation is, are we being to use Jesus' exact words, rich toward God. Now, I looked that up again this week from several scholarly sources. I thought I knew what it meant. I just wanted to make sure and get some different angles on it. And the Bible scholars will tell you that being rich toward God means being rich in God's sight. In other words, a person who's generous, a person who thinks about others' needs and not just their own needs. It means that while your financial portfolio is growing, you're regularly practicing generosity. You're practicing tithing. You're practicing meeting the needs of other people because this guy's problem is not that he was rich. I hope we've established that by now. No problem with the money. 
His problem was that his heavenly portfolio had a zero balance, zero. It had all been about him. He had forgotten that one day he was gonna give an account. He had forgotten, apparently, the truth of Ecclesiastes 5.15, which says, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. Look at this part. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. I hope you see why I include this as a gut check parable. And when I was a young Christian, reading this exact Bible, this is the exact Bible, my first Bible, I treasure it, still keep it today. I, I was curious, because when I was 13 and 14 years old, I read the Bible through for the very first time. And since then, I've just loved reading it many times through, but I, that was my first time. And so I'm, read, I'm reading this parable for the very first time. Now, you need to know that in that day, as a new believer, whenever God really made a verse leap off the page at me, I would circle it. And that was my way of saying, I wanna go back and memorize this one day, and or, wow, God is really speaking to me through this. And I was so curious, when I opened this Bible up this week, I circled verses 20 and 21 of this parable. It was that gut check moment. And I, I remembered the moment, I just didn't remember if when I read it that I had circled anything. And I was so amazed that I did. But I'll never forget that gut check moment. A brand new believer, I don't know up from down, I'm just trying to learn, I'm still wet behind the ears, but God was saying to me, Rex Keener, you need to tweak some things in your life. And one of those things, one of those things God wanted me to tweak was my attitude toward money. So that was, in my young life, the very first time I started tithing. There was an old gentleman at church who had talked to me and told me about the 10-10-80 principle, give 10%, save 10%, steward the other 80 as wisely as you can. And at about that same time, I'm reading this and I felt convicted to tithe. And so if I made $7 one day working in some farmer's hay field, hauling hay, I'd give 70 cents of that to the local church where my life was invested. And I continued that practice through the years and I never missed the money because it just became a mindset and then when Debbie and I were married some 33 plus years ago, I was so excited that she was on exactly that same page. She too believed, you know what? That is a powerful principle. We believe in generosity. And so we said, look, it's gonna be number one on our budget. If we do nothing else, we're gonna tithe no matter what. We are gonna practice the tithe because we wanna be successful, but we don't wanna be successful fools, if you know what I mean. That's what this guy was. Oh, he was a fabulous, he was written up in Forbes. Man, he was making all the talk shows. People were doing podcasts about this guy, but he was an absolute fool in God's eyes. Heavenly portfolio, zero. Zilch. Nothing. We didn't wanna be that. 
And so we tithe and we paid our bills and we raised two young children. And uh, during those years, this church was started. And for 10 years, 10 years, we didn't save a penny, but we tithed and we paid our bills. And then when I was 39 years old, we had enough money to tithe, to pay our bills, and we put away. The church had started a 401k. It's since then been transformed into a 403b, but it was a 401k in those days. And we put our first money into that. It was just over $1,000. And we thought we were the richest people on the planet. We were ecstatic. We were so excited. Now, folks, I wanna tell you, we are richly blessed. God has been so good to us, not just financially, but emotionally and relationally and in our soul and in our minds. I, 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 I think we're the most blessed people on the planet. But the one practice we're never gonna stop, even in retirement, is tithing. That's just a way we keep reminding ourselves God's the owner <laughs> and we're simply managers of all he's entrusted to us. Now, I don't know what God's takeaway for you is today. I don't know. I don't know how God's dealing with you. But maybe he's saying to you, you know what? This is a gut check moment for you. Maybe you need to tweak the way you're using your time. Maybe you need to open your home and have a small group in your home where people can come in and read the Bible together and study God's word together. Yeah, it would be a sacrifice, but maybe God wants you to do that. Maybe God's saying to you, you know, as you're raising your standard of living, maybe you ought to raise your standard of giving at the same time. Or maybe God's saying to you, look, You've been thinking all about the future and how you can cover all your bases. But have you ever thought about your own funeral? Maybe you need to do that exercise we started with and say, what do I want a family member, a close friend, a coworker, and somebody at church who knows me? What do I want those four people to say about me when I die? You say, that's morbid, Pat. No, it's not. I find it empowering. I do that practice often because it's so empowering to me. I walk away greatly encouraged saying, you know what? What an awesome way to live with the end in mind. However God's working, my guess is that for most of us, this is a gut check moment. Father, I thank you that you give us these special moments when you want us to pause and ask, is the road I'm on gonna get me where I wanna go? Is the way I'm living, is my list of priorities gonna end the way I want it to end? Is it gonna give me the life that I really treasure and hope for? May this be a gut check moment. Wherever people are listening from, whether it's in one of our campuses or maybe from their home or maybe from a hotel room or maybe they're on a trip somewhere around the world. May this be a gut check moment for all of us where we literally let you have your way in our lives and by your grace, we change the way we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. <laughs>